Okay, good evening. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We'll take another week's break from Proverbs as we look at this last week of Jesus' life. We did last Thursday, we will, we did on Sunday, we will this evening. We'll begin in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, and uh, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came, laid hands on Jesus, and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew a sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. 
But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. Put your sword in its place. Um, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide with me more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat with you daily teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of his disciples forsook him and fled. Let's pray for God's blessing. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to quicken our minds and hearts to not simply understand your scripture, but to internalize it in such a way that we would apply the great truths we find in it. I pray that would happen in the scriptures tonight in our own hearts personally. In Jesus' name, amen. So much here that I just want to get right into it. So Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus speaks here. And the knowledge that he has could be more than one-fold. It could be two-fold. The knowledge we could quickly say he knows what's going to happen and is prophesying any time somebody says something before something happens in great detail or any amount of detail really, it is a prophecy. And so he speaks to them and we could easily say, Well, he knows what's going to happen because he's God in the flesh. And being the incarnate God-man, Jesus knows that his disciples are going to all flee. They're going to betray him. They're going to run away from him. They will not be loyal to him. We could say he knows this because he's God, but that's not what Jesus does. It is true that he is God and he knows this is going to happen and because of Jesus Christ even the Old Testament is written some scholars by the way say that Jesus actually didn't know what was going to happen Um, and they're not trying to be offensive they're saying that Jesus divested himself in and through his incarnation of being all knowing they say a proof of that is the proof that Jesus said nobody knows the day or the hour except my Father in heaven. Um, There are those who say that is a proof text that Jesus does not have all knowledge and that he is completely relying on the scriptures and the Father who speaks to him to give him his direction in everywhere he's going in his 33 years of life on earth. Now, there's not a big problem with that. Jesus has, being God, the absolute authority to give up um, being all-knowing for a period of time. So I don't have a huge issue with that. That is not what I personally believe is going on. I believe that when Jesus said 
um, that nobody knows the day or the hour except his father. I believe he meant that in the moment that he said it. And now, after his glorification, burial, and resurrection, that is his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has retained all of his knowledge, being all-knowing about everything and anything in the world. However, it, it, it is clear that Jesus Christ is teaching us that through his example that we are to rely completely and absolutely on Scripture. That it is written in the Old Testament and that's all the knowledge Jesus would need in order to understand that all of his disciples would betray him. I personally believe he has all knowledge at this moment except for the day or the hour of the return that he would regain that after his resurrection. But that's, that's irrelevant. What Jesus is doing in saying all of you will be scattered, you will betray me, you will deny me, you'll be offended by me as you combine all the scriptures, all of the gospels giving us this story that Jesus in quoting the Old Testament is doing what the apostle Paul is doing over and over in the book of Romans as we study on Sunday morning that we are not to rely on our intellect, our IQ, our own perceived abilities that really um, perceived abilities is, it often just ends in pride. It is such an issue I find especially, not saying women aren't prideful, women are immensely prideful just like men, but I do believe it manifests itself in different ways. I have noticed a lot of men, they will speak on things they know nothing about all the time. You know, it's just, it's a constant thing. It's like, how do you think they uh, fly rockets into space? And you'll get a couple 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 year olds that really, they need to grow and mature, they'll start talking about, well, you know what they do is they get this flux capacitor and they wrap it in copper and they'll start telling you how to fly a rocket. I was this way, I, you know, as a, a young boy especially, and I, I think to a certain degree, we, you know, the guys just as they get older, they need to stop speaking on what they don't know. And really, for all of us, men and women, we need to speak on what we know in the scripture, which requires knowledge. We need to do it humbly. We need to do it gracefully. We need to do it tactfully. And, and really, unless you're constantly immersing yourself in scripture, learning, being a scholar 10 years ago, having not studied for 10 years because you studied the previous 10 years makes you not a scholar today. If that was too confusing is the law of uses. If you wanna be a scholar, you have to study every day. If you stop studying, that's the moment you stop being a scholar. That's the moment you stop being knowledgeable. N knowing the things of God, knowing the scriptures, well, it's like training for sports. You, 
may have been really good at basketball in your early 20s to late teens, but if you stop playing for 30 years and really age gets better, you're not going to be good now. You've got to train. You've got to train your mind. You've got to grow in the grace and knowledge. The word grow in the grace and knowledge means a, it's a present participle in the Greek. It means a constant renewing of the mind by the knowledge of God. And what Jesus is doing here is he could have said, you're all going to betray me. You're all going to um, be scattered. You're going to be offended by me. Because you know how I know this? Because I'm God. Because I'm God. But he doesn't do that. He does something in an example to us so that we could follow the example of Christ is that all we base our lives on is the knowledge of God's word. It, gets, it becomes very practical, by the way. Should I end this relationship? Well, it's an illicit, sexually moral relationship. Well, the Bible says not to even get in it. So yes, you should end it. Or should I stop hanging out with these people with bad company, corrupts, morals? Or should I, you know, um, whatever the situation is, the scriptures have an answer for it. And we base our entire life on, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. You know, all conversations have only gone two ways in all of human history. Only two ways. God says... Or man says. God says or man says. It's like, and, and listen, when people begin this, the, the, you, you'll notice conversations going a certain way. It's, the, they'll be like, well, you know what I think? Whoa, well, wait a minute. We don't care about what you think. Now, I'm not trying to be rude. And I'm not saying we, to say we don't care about what you think. Don't, don't say that to somebody, but say, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're starting with what you believe or with what you think, or what your opinion is. But let me tell you, you got to have a firmer foundation than that. you got to be rooted in what God says. Now, you can go off of a principle of what God says and be like, this is how you apply this. And I'm not saying become a, a, a semantical Nazi. Oh, wait, you said I think, not, don't do that, but... Like, you know, this whole conversation, you didn't start with a principle from God's word. God says this, therefore, we advise this way. Jesus is giving us this example. We need to do this. You need to have scripture on the ready all the time. Somebody comes up to you, young people, like, I can't stay pure. Well, how does a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to thy word. It's not just knowing the word. So there's two major principles in taking heed according to thy word as we've studied in Psalm chapter 119. First of all, you have to know thy word so you're growing in the knowledge of thy word in order that you may apply God's word. Taking heed to it doesn't mean just listening. It also carries the implication of applying You know, there's these battles with lust that so many of us can have. I think especially men. And, and you got to have scripture ready. You got to have scripture ready. It's like um, 
in, in uh, uh, the first Thessalonians, uh, I believe that each man should, or each person, each man should know how to possess his vessel with sanctification and honor, fleeing sexual fornication or sexual immorality. Boy, you gotta have that one memorized, guys. Bunch of perverts. No, I'm kidding, sorry. You gotta have that one memorized. Ladies, I don't know, you memorize the ones you need. I remember one time I was in a lot of, a season of just deep prayer. Uh, not that I don't pray now, it's just one of those seasons. It was, I was reading prayer books, you know, Ian Bounds, Andrew Murray's, they make you feel bad about not praying. So I'm praying a lot, and I had this dream one night. And in my dream, I was downstairs in my house here in, 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 in Eldoret, our rented house. Excuse me. This is probably so distracting, isn't it? I was downstairs, and in my dream, this demon I couldn't see. It was invisible, like the Bible says in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, in this present dark age, they're invisible. The Bible says, in Hebrews says in Ephesians. And in my dream, this demon picks me up and throws me on the ground. And it was a weird dream. I, I felt my back hitting the ground like I was receiving the pain in my dream. So I wake up and uh, I'm awake now. This is real life. And this demon is just standing next to me in my bed. And I, I became petrified. I, I guess I'm ashamed to say, I was, you guys know petrified. I, I was terrified and in my terrified state, I froze like, you know, petrified. <laughs> I was so scared, like a little kid, like a little girl. Sorry girls, that's probably an insult. And I thought, I need to wake Kelsey because she needs to help me. <laughs> and then I thought, man, I'll, I'll really look like a wuss if I wake my wife. So I didn't, but you know what? I had to start quoting scripture. He that is in you that is greater than he that is in the world. And I'm quoting the scripture, and as soon as the scripture come out of my mouth, I, I, I lost all fear. There was no fear in me just quoting scripture over and over. A few minutes of this, and I'm not afraid anymore. And I was so happy I didn't, I didn't wake up my wife. And the demon's still there, and I couldn't see it, guys, but I know the demon was there. And listen, don't think I'm being weird. There are demons around us all the time. The Lord just allowed me to, to feel, to sense the, the presence of this demon. I was able to go right back to sleep demon in my room and I could feel him hovering over me not even hovering he was standing so weird I could I could sense he wasn't like floating he was this this being standing next to me so I prayed for a couple days and I thought to myself I said you know what is the Lord trying to show me and then I heard from the Lord the Lord was trying to show me that I'm relying too much on my own strength and not his, and in a fight against the demon without Christ, I lose every time. So I called, uh, after I uh, you know, received the interpretation, I'm not like Daniel or anything, it was prayer, and I sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to me. I called my pastor, I said, hey, this happened to me. This ever happened to you? He's like, yeah, that happened to me, except one minor difference. <laughs> 
I said, what? He goes, I woke up my wife. <laughs> I said, yeah. Who's the man now, Ken? No, <laughs> and, I, and before I told him what I said, or what the Lord said to me of what he was trying to show me, I said, what was the Lord trying to show you? He said that I'm weak and I was relying on my own strength. It's not like the Lord is, the demon had the power to possess me or anything like that. Guys, it's the scripture that carries the power, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his revelation to us. I, I, I would encourage you, quote scripture all the time to, to your friends, to your family, to your kids, to your wife. I noticed that with my pastor, with the kid. I noticed when I started hanging out with him, he was quoting scripture. Just even, um, it was so good. Like even one time it was his, Ben, who will be out here in a few weeks. He was a little kid then. And uh, he's, he's not a little kid anymore. He's way bigger than I am. But he, he was getting somebody's business. This at the dinner table. And Ken had the, he quoted the, uh, the proverb about mind your own business. Getting somebody else's business is like grabbing a dog by the ears. But he had it memorized better than that. He had the whole thing just memorized. Like, man, that's good. Quote scripture. Jesus is setting a principle and a standard that is constantly set in the New Testament. Over and over and over. Paul, in the greatest defense of who mankind is, who Jesus Christ is, and what mankind needs, which is Jesus Christ, in the book of Romans, there's no greater book in the Bible than that. In like a courtroom, just an absolute apologetic situation, he's always saying, because the Bible says. The Old Testament says this, the Old Testament says that. But then Jesus says in verse 12, but after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus Christ is not saying, you guys are going to betray me. And I'm telling you this now because I just want to rub it in your faces. You know, we can get so mad at people which just like, I know you, I, you, you, you would betray me. You know, we don't have the kind of prophecy knowledge that Christ has here other than actually I just defeated what I was saying for 20 minutes is that we do have prophecy, Old Testament, same as Jesus. But he goes on to say, but I'll come before you in Galilee. He's not saying this to them to rub it in their faces. He's saying it to them to reassure them. He's saying, yeah, you're going to betray me, but I want you to know I'll come back for you. I'm not going to be offended enough to not speak with you. I'm not going to be offended enough not to have a relationship with you. I'm not going to be offended enough not to come back to you. And I'm even going to tell you the place I'm going to come back to you and then Galilee. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus isn't saying this to rub it in their faces. He's prophesying, or really what he's doing is he's retelling a prophecy in the Old Testament to reassure them this is going to happen as the scripture says, but remember, I'm still with you. Remember, I'm still coming for you. I'm going to be with you in Galilee. This isn't going to change our relationship. This isn't going to change how much I love you. 
This isn't going to change the reality that I want to be next to you, that I want to spend time with you, that I'm going to be your king, I'm going to be your friend, I'm going to be your counselor. This changes nothing about my dedication to you. I just pause for a minute and, and consider, brothers and sisters, how glorious that is. Can you imagine somebody turning on you in the most desperate time in your life, your greatest hour of need, and that person just coming right back to you with love, saying, hey, I know you ran away, I know you were disloyal, I know you even betrayed me, but I'm here now, and I still love you, and I just want you to know I forgive you, and I want us to be together. I want us to hang out. It, it's remarkable. I've had a lot of people in my Christian life get very angry with me. A lot of people. Now, not, not, that's not the norm. I don't want you to think, oh, everyone's angry at me. No, the majority of people are not angry at me, so don't. And, 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 and many of them have been angry for, for mistakes I've made, but a lot have been angry. Me making no mistakes. Even people get angry at me as I'm serving them, loving them. And my reaction to that anger to that disloyalty, to that betrayal, is not. I have to work through loving them. Not like Jesus, like, listen, before you even betray me, I, I, I want you to know I'm still going to be there for you. I'm still here, and I'm going to come after you in Galilee. It's remarkable. I can get this in my heart. Anger. How dare they? How could they? Why? Getting frustrated and hurt and, and then resulting that anger and just like, man, I want to talk bad about these people. I want to confront. I want to get in their face and say, how dare you do this? Not Jesus Christ, not our Lord. And aren't you grateful that he doesn't treat us the way we would treat each other? And it's an example to us. It's an example to me Say, you know what? This is how I should respond when people hurt me, betray me, are disloyal to me. This is how I should respond. Just like Jesus. I'm still going to be there for you. I'm still going to be in Galilee. I'm still going to be your friend. It's an incredible God that we serve. Peter, of course, answered and said, though all of these go away, I will not. Though all of them betray you, though all of them are stumbled by you. Jesus is like, listen, Peter, first of all, it's a problem. It's always a problem when God says, you're going to do this, and we respond with, I'll never do that. Guys, I know probably you never saw this movie, Five O Goes West by Disney, that was made in the 90s or late 80s. Anybody seen that? Five Will Goes West? It's a cartoon. There's a song in there. And it's such good advice. 
And that is the exact principle here. And he, never say never again. I hear it all the time. Oh, I would never do that. Oh, come on. I couldn't. You know, in Kenya, the equivalent of saying I never, in Kenya is saying, oh, I, I couldn't do that. It's like, yes, you could. Given the right opportunity in the right situation, we would have killed six million Jews, just like Adolf Hitler. Don't think for a second that you are not capable of great wickedness. That is a misunderstanding of who you are and who I am. Never say never again, especially when it comes to the will. Oh, I'm never going. You know, Kelsey said she'll never go to Africa. Kelsey said she'll never be a missionary in Africa. She's going to live the rest of her life in Africa. <laughs> and she's already been here 12 years. I catch myself. I don't do it as much anymore. I think I stopped doing this like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Don't ever say never. I recently... I, I, I was telling a, a guy who I was trying to disciple, he wasn't, he told me he wanted me to disciple him. I said, don't go to that place, you'll, you'll drink. If you go to that place, you will start drinking within a couple days. He was gonna leave a commitment. He's like, I will never drink again. I said, never say never again, man. He went and he drank. I think it was not even within two days. I think it was within like 24 hours. You know what's cool though is Jesus never, after they betray him, he never comes back and is like, I told you so. <laughs> Who was right? Be careful with that too. Don't you want to say I told you so when you told somebody something and it actually happened? Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, if you would have listened to old J-Law, you would have learned we got to refrain from doing that too. we got to come to people in humility and gentleness. Well, Jesus is saying, Peter, surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter double downs. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will deny, deny you. And all of his disciples said the same thing. We often think it's just Peter. Remember the scriptures, all of them. You got to think these guys are mad at Peter. You got to think at some point, man, Peter is really ticking me off. Because he's sitting there with the guys and he says, Jesus, even though all, I mean, how did he do it? They're standing right there. Even though all of these guys betray you, I will not. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, these guys are real losers, but remember who I am, Jesus. I'm your number one. <laughs> and he betrays them worse than all of them except Judas. Yeah, so they, they, it's like, yeah, these people, but me. This is an overestimation of oneself. Do you remember what, as we're studying in the Proverbs, the Bible says, do not have an overestimation of yourself. In Philippians chapter 2, do not think highly of yourself. 
It's important that we do not think greater of our own abilities than what is true. And the truth is, at any moment, we can make terrible decisions in our lives. And we need to safeguard them. Well, when Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane, said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And then he took Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, John being the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. The apostle whom Jesus loved. And then he took them even further in and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now remember, the Bible is the master of understatements. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is not a number of nuclear explosions that could quantify the power needed to create the universe, and it is written in one verse. One verse in the Bible. That is an understatement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, here, it does something more in terms of not understating. And when you consider this principle, which is an absolute hermeneutical truth, the hermeneutics is how we interpret the Bible, is that it is speaking not in hyperbole, but using language to try to describe the pain that Jesus is going through. He's not just distressed and sorrowful. He is deeply distressed and sorrowful. And in a way, and the language that it can best use to describe to us that he who knew no sin is becoming sin for us in this moment, that we might become the righteousness of God in him to the glory of God the Father in heaven. I mean, this is now all the sins of the world are coming upon Jesus, not on the cross. It begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he is being, being crushed, by the way, Garden of Gethsemane is this olive garden. Gethsemane means the crushing. They would take the olives and they would crush them to make oil. And that oil is used to do what? To anoint. And it is symbolic of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Without a crushing, you can never be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And especially without believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and his crushing and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, you can never be anointed by the Holy Spirit. It is unfortunate, but more often than not, that we need great death and tragedy in our lives before we greatly depend upon Jesus Christ and God. It's sad that it needs to be so. 
So often, so many people who have very painful lives, not that pain turns into appreciation, brokenness, and humility, because pain can turn into hatred, bitterness, and pride. But those who have gone through the pain, God will use for the good for those who love him and according to his purpose. And and, uh, it doesn't have to be that way. People can grow up with good godly parents. They can grow up without getting into terrible sins, though they are a terrible sinner. And that's the key, by the way. You don't have to get into terrible sins without realizing that you're a terrible sinner and in your terrible sin, you can have a great appreciation for God. But more often than not, it is people who have been forgiven much that love much. That's a whole nother study, by the way. I just... Don't go off and get into tons of pain before understanding. You don't have to get into all that pain to understand how big of a sinner you are and how much God has already forgiven you. People think, oh, he uh, used to do drugs and alcohol and all these terrible things. That's why he loves God so much. That's why he has such a good testimony. Anybody who has had the realization of how terribly prideful and wicked and sinful they are and have been broken because of that and love God because of forgiveness has a good testimony. You don't have to go to the clubs to have a good testimony. You don't have to get involved in sexual morality to have a good testimony. You don't have to be a drunkard to have a good testimony. Your testimony is, I am a prideful person. Have you guys... I hope, I hope that you've had a revelation of your sin and your pride. A real revelation, not just a cliche, not just, oh yeah, I'm, I'm prideful like everyone else. You know, I hear that a lot. It's like, no, 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 no. A deep revelation of your pride on a continual basis. Remember that definition I heard a preacher say the other day? He said, humility is the opposite of having a sense of entitlement. I want to be respected. That person owes me a smile. They owe me a greeting. And when we don't get it, we're mad. Man, I'm, I heard that preaching the other day and I thought, oh, I'm so prideful. I'm so prideful. Jesus Christ is taking on the sins of the world right in this garden, not on the cross. We know that because he's deeply distressed and he is so distressed, the gospel of Luke teaches us, through this crushing of the wrath of God beginning in the garden of Gethsemane, this crushing of abandonment, much more than a physical. Don't think Jesus Christ for one moment when he says, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Don't think for a second Jesus is trying to avoid physical pain. Don't think for a second he is trying to avoid a scourging or being nailed physically to a cross. 
He is the most courageous, brave, manly guy who's ever lived. He isn't scared of a scourging or a crucifixion like we would be, guys. We would, we would be. We'd be like, ooh, please. You, 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 I've often wondered how I would hold up under physical torture. You know, guys, don't say never again. I would never, you know. I would never. Oh, I pray to God I'd have the strength to go through it like a man. Have you ever heard a man scream like a girl because he got scared? You ever heard it? I can't even, I can't even do it in the mic. It's, you, you gotta scream like a man if you're gonna scream at all. I'm so, I'm so, so many guys. <laughs> Physical pain. <laughs> There's, there's been men who've gone through physical play, pain like warriors. You guys heard Polycarp got burnt alive while singing songs. John Huss burnt alive for his king, Jesus Christ, without screaming. <sighs> That's not why Jesus is praying to avoid the cross. Let me tell you that right now. He is having the sins of the world and the wrath of his father crush him. And if that happened to us for one second, as it began to happen to him in the Garden of Eden, we would die instantly. Our hearts would explode. We could not handle the sins of the world. We could not handle the wrath of the father. It's crushing him like an olive. It's crushing him, guys. And more than that, by the way, more than that, I believe it's even more than the spiritual pain. But I believe the ultimate spiritual pain in what Jesus is experiencing is the separation from his Father. We can never understand the pain of this separation. We can only try to relate in an infinite, infinitesimally smaller way the pain Jesus is going through. The, the greatest way I can relate it to is with my wife and kids. This last summer, I felt more pain than I had in a long time. The only other pain I was in, I was in terrible pain as a young boy and a teenager because of my family situation and not having a father. Terrible pain, but the only other pain I, I felt is this last summer. I was gone from my family th three to four days a week for seven months. It's terrible pain. I'm not trying to sound... Like, what's guys? And it got even worse when I would get a phone call from Zeph. And Zeph, he, he, he didn't do well with it. He wasn't doing well. It's like, why do you have to be gone? One day he said to me, I actually told you guys at the Love the Bible conference last year. I got it during the, uh, the, the message from 
from Zev, he says, why do other people get to see dad more than we do? I was like, oh my gosh, crushed me, crushed me. Do you guys feel sorry for me yet? I'm just trying to relate it. I, I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. That's the only thing I related to. There was one time where I was with my best friend growing up. <laughs> we were together every day for like six months. I, we kind of abandoned school. It was during, no, it was like four months. And, and you know, you, I was going to another state, leaving. We were all on drugs. I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss you bad. But nothing like my wife and kids. It's a bad comparison because what Jesus Christ and his father had to have experienced for all of eternity is coming to an end for a brief moment in this moment. To the point where on that cross, complete separation to the point where Jesus cries out, Lama Sabachthani, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain of that is what is deeply distressing Jesus Christ. Separating himself from the Father in order that we might be connected to him. In order that we may not be separated anymore. If, if we, do you know that Jesus actually said be ye perfect as I am perfect. That's never going to happen on earth. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't try. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if we behaved like Jesus, there wouldn't be one argument amongst us. Not one fight. Not one offense. Not one second of bitterness, resentment, hate. If we behaved like him, if we would sacrifice our own privileges, our own desires, what we think is entitled to us so that we may connect other people to each other, not separating, Nothing breaks my heart worse than division. Nothing. Jesus Christ, so humble. And it's so easy to try to justify us not humbling ourselves in front of people. It's so easy to try to justify. I'm in a situation now with my, one of my family members, one of my brothers, who just, he is so angry with me, so hateful. But the thing is, he happens to be wrong. And this is, this is evidenced by all these people, my pastor and all these people. And the way he speak, spoke to me on the phone, I just wanna be like, you know what, forget you. And I am tempted to write to him. I, I'm probably, I have to do it now because I'm telling you. To, to ask him to forgive me because I was not perfect towards him. 
I, I just want to know the way forward to try to restore this relationship. And I know it's humility. I know it's humility. Just like Jesus Christ. I got to humble myself. I got to sacrifice my pride, my nasty, wicked pride. Well, Jesus goes on and says, then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? I don't think he said it like that. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he in a way prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, prayed the third time, saying the same words, and he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my brother and or see my betrayers at hand. He's being betrayed. The language that Jesus uses is very interesting. He's being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus doesn't view, this is so important. Jesus does not view those Roman soldiers and the, 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 the soldiers from the chief priest and all those because it was a combination. It wasn't just, as it says here, just guards from the chief priest. Other gospel accounts tell us it was a cohort of Roman soldiers. And he says, like, look, the Romans are coming and the, the, the guards of the chief priests. He doesn't identify him in those ways. Hey, guys, look, the enemy's coming. He doesn't identify him in these ways. He identifies them as sinners. Look, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Guess who else is sinners? His disciples. Guess who else is sinners? You and me. We are responsible for Jesus Christ being delivered on the cross. We sinners are responsible for this. Nobody takes his life. He lays it down. And the other you know, thing that we need to consider when it comes to this portion at the beginning when it says that the scriptures might be fulfilled, it's not just that God can see the beginning from the end and because he exists outside of time that he can see the end of time and everywhere in between and how it's going to go. And because of that, he spoke to people in time and told us how it's going to happen. No, it's not just because he sees the end from the beginning, but because he controls the times. The scriptures might be fulfilled. Nobody can stop the scripture from being fulfilled. Because he is more powerful than anybody that would try to stop the will of God. The will of God will be accomplished and nobody could ever stop it. I, I, I don't use the word sovereign a lot because it's been now associated with Reformed theology and Calvinistic theology. Um, and then so often if you say sovereign more than 
10 times in a sermon, you can immediately identify a Calvinist. I just don't agree with their definition of sovereignty, but when you hold a biblical definition, understand God is sovereign. God is in control. Nobody can stop what's going to happen. God can't end it, or man can't end the will of God. God wants something to happen, it's gonna happen. It's just like that. That, that that's not an a, a, a exhaustive definition of sovereignty, but it certainly is a basis of one. God's will will be fulfilled, and no human being can stop it. Now, when he identifies them as sinners, he's doing something um, not only that's proper in this moment, but there's a principle for us to understand. I hear a lot, and I, I'm growing in this personally. I, I think over the last really 12 to 24 months, it's been more for me in, in terms of growth. Is that I want to identify all people as sinners saved by grace too. Not for those who are born again, but understand, I want to identify people in this category so that I don't think that myself or anybody else is better than the people in this category because we're all in this category. And what I mean by that is when you consider everybody in the same category as deeply sinful in need of a savior, you stop being so frustrated with people's sin, so angry, so hateful, so bitter. So offended, so frustrated, you really can stop that. You're like, well, yeah, they're doing a terrible thing or they've done a terrible thing or they're saying terrible things or they're treating me badly. But you know what? I could easily do the same thing because I'm a sinner. And, and I have to believe this way because nobody is beyond saving. Nobody. And get so angry with people because of their sin. And just remember that God saved or he's uh, delivered, uh, he has the capacity of delivering all people from their sins. I have to believe the truth that people can change. It is a truth because I need to believe that I can change. And I need to believe, and this is more fundamental to what I'm saying, that I need change. That's what I'm trying to say. It took a minute for it to come out. Stop judging people so harshly. There are nasty people. I get it. People running around dividing, slandering, gossiping, murdering. I get all that. But I have to believe God can save them and I have to believe they can change because not only have I been saved, but I need more change. I do not want to be the same person and five years from now that I am today. I don't want to be the same person a year from now that I'm today. I don't want to be the same person after the Love the Bible conference that I am today. That's why we have conferences that the Spirit of God may pour out upon us. That's why we have church. So that we can hear the Word of God. He says, and I'm making a big deal out of it because it's important. The Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of sinners, not the hands of the Romans, not the chief priests, it's Pharisees. 
I'm being delivered to you, Peter, because of you. I'm being delivered by them. It's because of humanity's collective sin that I'm allowing the Romans, that I'm allowing the chief priests to arrest me. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So don't imagine 12 to 15 people like our movies show us or our pictures paint us. There is a minimum of 300 men, and some scholars believe as much as a thousand men are coming into the garden to arrest Jesus. And you may ask the question, Why would 300 men need to come arrest Jesus? Because Judas is leading them. Judas has been with Jesus for over three years. He's like, guys, 20 men come into the scene. Judas is like, you need more men. (laughs) Because I just saw him raise Lazarus from the dead last Saturday. (laughs) Okay? Um, I saw him feed 5,000 people. I saw the Pharisees with a multitude, dozens and dozens of people, take to kill him with stones, try to push him on the edge of a cliff, and he just walked right through all of them, and they didn't even notice him do it. The things Judas has seen. You you remember that? It's like they took up stones to kill him, push him to the edge of a cliff. He walked right through them. Who's in control here? Jesus. He's like, oh, you guys want to kill me? Boop. Blindness. Can't see me. Come on, guys. And Judas is like, oh. He's like, you need more men. And the Bible in the language, it says a cohort of men. So you got several hundred men coming to arrest Jesus Christ, being led by Judas Iscariot. And he comes and he says, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. He actually, when you put all the gospel, says you've come to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Friend, what are you doing? Why have you come? That's what Jesus says to Judas. It's remarkable. Listen, guys, as I, you may have learned earlier, I, I don't believe in all the tenets of Reformed theology, nor do I disagree with all of them. But there is this belief that of double predestination, God is going to save who he wants and he's not going to save the others and they're deserving of hell, so they go there. But listen, I believe that man must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ before they're saved. Not that free will has anything to do with works, but free will is an entity that exists outside of works or pure righteousness or pure depravity, and we must choose Christ. With that said, I don't believe it is just a stage in which Jesus is being kind to somebody who is... Uh, you know, never going to get saved and Jesus knows that. Now, Jesus does know that. But I believe that Judas had a free will to choose Christ right up until the point of his death. 
and he is reaching out to him. That's what I believe. Friend, why have you come? In the Garden of Eden, he says, Adam, where are you? You guys remember that? You should look up on your way home tonight or when you get home, look up Don Francisco's song, Adam, where are you? It's beautiful. So beautiful. Why would God ask Adam where he is when God knows everything about where Adam is? Because he wants Adam to tell him where he is. Now, I'm not saying that Judas could have got saved. It was prophesied that Judas would not be saved and Jesus knew that. There's a lot going on here that's mysterious to me. But he is definitely displaying kindness. He wants Judas to speak. Why have you come? Tell me that you're, going, you're betraying me. Speak out. Adam, where are you? Tell me where you're at. I know exactly where you're at. It's for you to speak out. It's for you to repent. They came and laid hands on Jesus, took him, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew a sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. I think Matthew was being kind to Peter because in um, other parts, it tells us Peter's name. I think Matthew's being nice. He doesn't want to bring up somebody's foolish acts, somebody's sin. So Peter pulls out the sword, cuts his ear off. He's trying to kill him, guys. He missed his head, cuts the ear. He's not a swordsman. <laughs> That's embarrassing, you know? It's like, oh, I'll kill him. I'm going to cut his head right off. Got the ear. Nah. Put your sword away, Peter. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He doesn't tell him to throw away his sword. He tells him to put away. God's not against guns or weaponry. He says, or do you not think that I can pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Now listen. The father is not forcing the son to do what the father wants. Jesus has the power right then to say, Father, I don't want to die on the cross. Kill all of these men. Father would have sent him. They would have died. It is the will of Jesus Christ to, father, to follow his Father's will, and it is the will of Jesus Christ in his love for us to die on the cross. He's not being forced to do this. And so, he goes on, and he says to these men, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat with you daily teaching in the temple and you did not seize me, but all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled once again, ending with what the word of God says in the Old Testament, and then all the disciples forsook him. Listen, Jesus Christ is saying, you guys are the criminals, not me. 
You guys are the robbers. You're the thieves. You're the liars. I was with you publicly. You didn't arrest me then because you have no charges against me. I'm innocent. I'm guiltless. I'm spotless. You don't have one accusation against me. So you have to arrest me in private because there is no just cause for my arrest. That's what he's saying. Saying you are being dishonest. You could have arrested me in public where I was all the time, but you're arresting me in private because this is an illegal, unjust arrest. That's what Jesus is saying. Now to end, 10 minutes, really we end at 7.30 anyways, but I wanted to end with this prayer thing. Jesus says, Could you not wait with me one hour for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In another part of the gospels, he tells these three men, Peter, James, and John, he says, pray lest you enter into temptation. Is it possible that if they were praying, they would have not betrayed him and fled? I believe It is not just a general temptation they would have not entered into, but Jesus was actually talking to Peter, James, and John specifically that the temptation they would avoid was the temptation of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane and the next 12 hours even in the courtyard with Peter. That's what I believe. Now, we can use it generally that when we're praying, we will not enter into temptation. You know, I have, I know this seems off color, but I I have a lot of people coming to me with sexually immoral issues. And people just come up and say, how do I stop the pornography? How do I stop the, the, the masturbation? I'll say, listen, if you're tempted, just pray or worship with a song because it's hard to sing Amazing Grace while you're masturbating. If you can do that, you're a real sicko. And listen, I'm not trying to be coarse. This is a big issue in the world. It's a big issue, sexual immorality. But beyond that, temptations in general, listen, guys. If you're not praying each and every day, I mean a real prayer. Do you face pain? Do you face trouble? Do you face trials? Of course you do. Jesus Christ faced trials. And I believe that we need to take a physical posture. And I know it can get legalistic. I know you can stand up and and pray and God will hear you. I get that. And I know it's true. And I'm not trying to give a, a law here. But I find my heart changes when I fall on my knees or on my face. For me personally, maybe you're stronger than that, you can do it, but Jesus Christ fell on his face in his temptation, in his trial. That's what the scripture says. He fell on his face. He was deeply distressed. Do not run to sin. Do not run to gossip and slander, alcohol, whatever the case may be, pornography, when you're facing painful times. 
Go into your room alone and fall on your face. Fall on your knees and just begin to pray. You will find yourself overcoming temptation and bad thoughts. You'll find yourself overcoming sin. I would encourage you right here tonight, if you don't have a prayer life, that you're going to resolve. You're saying, yep, that's, that's it. Scripture, I know I've read this before, but it's being taught again tonight. I'm, I'm in temptations all the time. I face temptations all the time, whether it be sexual or, or, or bad-mouthing or drunkenness or pride or, or just whatever it is. I face temptations. Hatred, anger. That's it. I haven't been praying. That's it. I haven't been praying. Then you're going to resolve today a prayer life. You're going to have a prayer life. And, and if you used to have a prayer life, you don't anymore. Repent and come back and get a prayer life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this last few hours that we get to study before you died on the cross. And as the word is preached tomorrow about the cross, I pray that it would remind us of your glory. It would remind us of our great need for you and that it would cause us to be grateful. I thank you for each person here tonight. Coming out on Thursday, I pray you bless them. I thank you for the season we're in. I pray you would just be magnified and glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.